Chapter Eleven of The Windy Hill by Cornelia Meggs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Three Cousins. Good gracious, Oliver! Do you mean to say you really did not know? We used to talk it over, Polly and I, and wonder whether you were not beginning to see through us. Janet had some suspicions, and when she met us at the fair this afternoon, she understood who we were at last. Now I will present you to Miss Eleanor Marshall Brighton, known to her own family as Polly. I would not have broken this thing to you so suddenly if I had taken time to think. Oliver listened to Cousin Tom's half-apologetic explanations, yet he scarcely heard them, but still stood leaning against the doorpost, gaping with astonishment. Of course he had always known there was something unusual about the bee-man, but as to who he really was he had never had an inkling. And this was Cousin Eleanor, the girl he had pictured so definitely that it seemed she could not be other than the prim, detested person he had so dreaded meeting. It was the very vividness of his idea of her that had stood in the way of his guessing the truth. But if the bee-man were really Cousin Tom, then he could, of course, put everything right, and, more immediate cause for rejoicing, Polly could cook. "'Oh, come down to the kitchen and get Cousin Jasper something to eat,' he begged. "'He is almost starved. It is half-past eight, and he had lunch at twelve. He gave Tom Bryden a rapid account of what had happened that day of the letter, of Cousin Jasper's increasing agitation, of his final desperate call for help on his own responsibility. "'Poor Oliver, what a day you have had, while the rest of us were enjoying ourselves at the fair,' said Cousin Tom. "'Polly and I happened to come home early before the storm, so that your message found us, and we came at once.' "'And he has starved himself,' put in Polly. He has not had anything to eat any more than Cousin Jasper. It was wonderful to watch Polly making short shrift of the remains of his own awkward preparations, to see her skilful manipulation of the gas-burners and her marvellous dexterity with the egg-beater. And this slim, eager, shy Polly, with her crinkled brown hair and her freckled nose, this was really Eleanor Bryden. Oliver sat down limply upon one of the kitchen chairs to contemplate the wonder of it anew. "'I did not know who you were myself that first day,' she said, though Daddy guessed at once and even suspected that you were planning to go away. Janet told us all about it this afternoon, how Cousin Jasper made such a mistake and thought that he could force you to meet a girl that you were sure you wouldn't like. I would have done just the same myself if my father had tried to make me meet you, only he is too wise for such a thing. But Oliver could only shake his head and marvel that he had not guessed. Later, after Cousin Jasper and Oliver had feasted on the supper of Polly's providing, they all gathered about the table in the library, and Cousin Tom unlocked the battered old strong-box that he had brought in from the car. "'As I am the family lawyer,' he explained to Oliver, "'yes, bees are only a hobby, and my real business is the law. I have in my possession most of the records belonging to this affair. 
I have gone into the whole matter of Anthony's claims from the very beginning, and I am prepared to fight him for every inch that he demands. He began taking papers from the box, fat rolls of legal documents, letters with their edges worn into tatters, and addressed in the crabbed writing of a century ago, title deeds discolored and yellow with age, most of them fastened with great red seals, a mass of musty records that looked dry and dull indeed. While he was spreading them out upon the table, the door opened quietly, and Janet slipped in. She assured them that they had dined and had not got wet, that except for Mrs. Brown's terrible fever of anxiety lest Cousin Jasper should not be properly cared for, all had gone well. Might she listen, please? And was there going to be another story? Not of just the same kind that I have been telling you up yonder on the windy hill, replied Tom Brighton, although here you see the source of all those tales, and of a hundred others like them. They are all buried here in these dusty papers, the history of your forebears and of the lands in Medford Valley. It goes all the way back, does the record, to the time when our several times great-grandfather bought the first tract from the Indian Ashola. I am always glad to think that the red man had enough intelligence and the white man enough honor to make something like a real bargain, that this valley was purchased for what the wild lands were worth, instead of being paid for with a gun, a drink of bad spirits, and a handful of beads. See, here is Nashola's name. He learned to write after a fashion, although the Indian witnesses signed only with a mark. And here is the signature of that first one of our kin to settle in the new world, Matthew Hallowell. Hallowell, echoed Oliver, did he belong to those same Hallowells in the story, who quarreled over the huntress? Yes, was the answer, he was the beginning of a vigorous line, living in and near Medford Valley, until there came at last the Hallowell who moved to the seaport town, who built his first ship there and launched into foreign trade. They became great merchants, the Hallowells, in that time between the Revolution and the War of 1812, when Yankee ships and Yankee owners were lords of the high seas. But fortune failed after the death of Reuben Hallowell. His son Alan loved sailing rather than trading, and his daughter Cicely married a junior partner in a lesser firm, Howard Bryden, who thought it better for his sons and daughter to go to live on the lands in Medford Valley that had belonged to their mother and had been given by her to him. Cicely's children were Ralph and Felix and Barbara Bryden, of all of whom you have heard. "'How have they heard, Tom?' asked Cousin Jasper, and the bee-man smiled. I have been filling up their minds with family history, for I knew that they must understand about this whole affair some day, and it would take too long to tell them all the facts at once. So we have come now to the last portion of the story, he went on, turning again to the younger members of his audience, to a period when three cousins, Jasper Payton, Anthony Crawford, and Tom Bryden, used to spend much time together when they were growing up. Jasper and I are first cousins, since my father was Ralph Bryden, and his mother was that younger sister, Barbara. I have had no reluctance in telling you of that bitter mistake my father made, and the quarrel with his brother, for he spoke of it often himself, and said that, in all his life, he never learned a more valuable lesson. 
Felix did not marry, since his zeal for the orchard and the bees, and later for farming on a larger and larger scale, seemed to occupy his every thought. It was he who reclaimed the marshy waste-ground in the valley. For, he said, it is wrong that we on the seaboard leave our home acres and move farther and farther westward, looking for new land that is easy to till. It is a wasteful policy, even for a new country. That was one of the things he had learned on his long journey across the west and back again. But I do not understand about Anthony Crawford, put in Oliver. I haven't seen yet where he comes in at all. He calls us cousin, but it is a distant kinship, since he is grandson of that Martin Hallowell who broke with his partner Reuben over the matter of the huntress. He used to come often to stay in Medford Valley, for he had been left without parents, and Felix Bryden was his guardian. My Aunt Barbara, Jasper's mother, had lost her husband early, and she went to live with her brother Felix in the yellow stone farmhouse that had come to him from some earlier Hallowell, who had built it a hundred years ago. How we loved the place, and how happy we all were there, for I spent almost as much time under that wide friendly roof as did Anthony. How patient and good Jasper's mother was to three mischievous active boys, and how unceasingly wisely kind was Felix Bryden. He has done much for us, Jasper and me, and he would, if he could, have made a man of Anthony. He was not like the other two of us, we could see that even when we were children. He was quicker and more clever than we, and he was better, or at least wiser, at holding his tongue and keeping his temper when the occasion served. But the key to his whole character was that he could never see any possession in the hands of another without instinctively wishing to have it for himself. I have seen him move heaven and earth to get something that he did not really want, merely because it seemed of value when it belonged to someone else. There was no one more clever than he at acquiring what he desired. Felix Bryden prospered greatly, but he never moved out of the comfortable farmhouse of which we were all so fond. It became very beautiful under his hands, extended and improved, and filled with the rarest treasures of his gathering. He was especially fond of pictures, so that there was a wealth of portraits and landscapes that he had collected or inherited, that glowed like jewels on the mellow old walls. He did us unnumbered kindnesses when we were boys, and when, on growing up, we decided that we would all three be lawyers, he set us up as partners, Payton, Crawford, and Bryden. We felt very important with our law-books, our profound knowledge, our newly painted sign, and very little else. Even while we were studying, it was plain that Anthony, in his erratic, changeable way, was the cleverest of us all. And then history repeated itself, as it so often does. The grandson of Martin Hallowell and the two great-grandsons of Reuben fell out with each other over just such a questionable enterprise as had wrecked a partnership a hundred years ago. I can see him now, as he came hurrying into our office that day, full of the plan for his great scheme, just a quibble of the law and the thing was done. We were all to be made rich and successful by it, he explained. There is no use in describing to you the intricacies of his idea. 
It was one of those shoal waters in which the honesty of young lawyers can sometimes come to grief. The pursuit of law will winnow out the true from the false. It makes an upright man a hundred times more certain and more proud of his honor. It searches out the small weak places of a meaner man's soul. Anthony tried to make this project sound quite simple and straightforward, but I can remember how narrowly he watched us, and how when he attempted to laugh at our objections his voice cracked into shrill falsetto under pressure of his excitement. I would have argued with him, explained, tried to dissuade him, but Jasper scorned my temporizing and would have had none of it. His sense of justice blazed high within him, and his words leapt forth, a very avalanche of scorn and wrath. Anthony heard him through without replying, then turned on his heel and went out. Our partnership was at an end. Later we heard that he had become involved with his scheme even before he spoke to us, that he had made himself liable for a sum of money, and that to pay it, don't wince Jasper, these children must know the truth, to pay it he forged Felix Bryden's name. There is something very terrible in the sudden destruction of your confidence in someone you have loved and trusted. Anthony is greatly changed now, although there is still a little of his old charm left. Yet you would not think of him as someone who had been an intimate part of our lives, a comrade whose cleverness we admired, and whose honesty we had never doubted. And then he was suddenly blotted out of our existence. The wrong he had done was hushed up, he disappeared somewhere in the West, and it seemed that we were never to hear of him again. The years went by, Jasper's mother and then our Uncle Felix went from us. He had given me the lands on the west side of the river, since I was already owner of the cottage, the windy hill, and the bees that he had taught me to tend and love. To Jasper he had given the Yellowstone house, that had been like home for us all, and his intimate possessions, the treasures it contained. He had given him also the drained farmlands by the river, a legacy that was an occupation in itself. He had seen that Jasper's bent was not really for the law, but that his best calling was the care of such an estate as this. More years passed. I became more and more absorbed in my own work down in the seaport town that has become a city, spending my holidays and my vacations in caring for the bees, not seeing Jasper so often, for he was over-busy also. And then Anthony came home. Whatever he had been doing in all this time we have no way of knowing. He had altered greatly, so that there seemed nothing left of his old self, except his cleverness, some lingering affection for the place where he had been happy as a boy, and that old habit of coveting what other people had. He came back with a claim to make, one that went back as far as the day when Reuben and Martin Hallowell quarrelled and made a hasty division of what had belonged to them in common. There had always been a slight doubt as to the title of the land upon which the Yellowstone farmhouse stood, and to the upper end of the farms by the river. Anthony knew of it from the days when we studied law together, and he came back determined to make that property his. I will not deny that he had some slight basis for his claim. He would accept no compromise or offer of purchase, so in the end Jasper gave in to him. 
Cousin Jasper had not spoken throughout Tom Brydon's recounting of the whole affair. But now he took up the tale himself, going over the ground that very evidently he had pondered and argued and weighed within himself a hundred times. I had much, and he had nothing. He was in real want, and had a wife and two children besides. There was, as Tom says, some real basis for his claim, since the title had never been made quite clear. And there is, further, no more biting thing than a family quarrel, a division over the settlement of property, this one asking for what is more than his, that one fighting to hold what is not his own. No, it was unthinkable. So we settled the matter peaceably enough. I built a new house above him on the hill, and he settled down in the place that had been home to all of us. He seemed to have repented of the wrong he had done, and we were ready to forget it. I do not think that I ever doubted the honesty of his purpose, at first. Then it came to my wishing for some of the old possessions for my new house, and he vowed that every one of them was his. I know, said Janet, nodding quickly. He wouldn't give up the pictures, though he did not care for them himself. They were stored in the dust and dirt under the eaves, and he asked me if you had sent me to see where he kept them. He only wanted them because they were yours. I suppose he meant to sell them some day, Cousin Jasper answered, for there were several that were of almost as much value as the house itself. But less than ever was I willing to bicker and haggle over what I had really loved, and since he would not sell them to me, I gave the matter up. Even then there was a little justice on his side, for the pictures had been purchased with money from the lands that he called his. But it was my great mistake, since he did not understand at all why I yielded to him, and from that time he made certain that he had but to force me, and I would relinquish everything. Oliver muttered something angrily, and went to stand by the window. He wanted a minute to think it out, to understand clearly before the tale went on. He could see just how Anthony had read Cousin Jasper's character, sensitive, high-strung, with strong affections that not even great wrongs could quite break down. But how mistaken the man had been who thought Jasper Payton was a weak-willed person to be led anywhere! His success in getting made him greedy for more, went on Cousin Jasper, and he began to push his claims further and further, until I verily believe he began to think that everything I had should be his own. When I refused to yield one more inch, then the difficulties began indeed. He let the old house fall into unbelievable disrepair, and he took the stand that since I was defrauding him he was too poor to do otherwise. I built the high wall across the garden so that I need not see the home I had loved dropping to pieces before my eyes. At that his anger seemed to pass beyond control. He claims this and he claims that, but I know that his final aim is the whole of what I have. He sent me a letter today. I do not understand why he did not come himself. He says that he is about to take public action, that he will bring into court the story of how Felix Brighton became his guardian, and used that position as a blind to live in possession of Anthony's inheritance, 
Oh, I cannot repeat it all, his threats against our good name and against the memory of those who are gone. Cousin Jasper's voice dropped wearily into silence. Oliver dug his hands deep into his pockets, and stood staring and scowling out through the window, although all that he saw was the blackness outside, and the dim reflection of his own face upon the pane. "'Our Uncle Felix never had the least notion that Anthony had a claim upon the place,' Tom Brydon was saying behind him. "'It was a legal technicality that Anthony was clever enough to find and make the most of. I do not at all believe in his right to it, even yet.' "'He doesn't believe in it himself!' Oliver made his declaration, whirling suddenly about upon them. I told him that he was only bluffing, and he could not even deny it. How I hate him! he cried huskily. It is lucky that there are none of your bees nearby just now. Jasper Payton looked at him in blank inquiry, but the bee-man smiled, yet shook his head at the same time. It is not only bees that are destroyed by hating, he said. It is every good thing in life that dries up and blows away under the force of dislike and bitterness. Look at Anthony, who vows he has no affection for anyone, who does not believe in friends or kindliness. He has hurt others, he has brought no happiness to himself, and unless I am mistaken, he is going to wreck his whole scheme in one tremendous crash that we cannot now foresee. A lawyer like myself sees many hard, miserable, sordid things, but a bee-man has leisure to speculate as to whither they tend. And they all tend to the same thing. They sat for some time about the table, explaining, discussing, and questioning, until finally the muffled booming of the clock in the hall proclaimed the hour of ten. Polly's eyes were beginning to look heavy, a fact that did not escape her father's watchful observation. "'These girls have had a long day, and it is time for them to be in bed,' he announced. "'We have been over this whole matter and made things clear, and we have only to decide, since we are to fight Anthony in court, just what stand we will make. We will talk that over, Jasper, while Oliver takes your car and drives Polly home.' "'I'll go with them,' said Janet, jumping up also. She had been listening, bright-eyed and alert, through all of the story, and showed no signs of sleepiness. Oliver tore himself away with some regret, for he did not wish to miss a word of the plans the two men were making. But Polly was evidently weary, and ready to go home. "'Come along, Cousin Eleanor,' he said briskly, and the three went, laughing, out through the door and down the steps." It was very dark when Oliver brought out the big car, and skirting the fallen tree, made his way carefully down the drive. A bank of clouds to the eastward was all that was left of the storm, however, and through this the moon was breaking, with promise to rise clear and come out into an empty sky. Oliver slowed down the car as they came to the gate and stopped for a moment to consider. The wind had dropped so completely that they could hear every sound of the summer night, even the dull, far-off roar of the flooded river. "'Do you know,' he began slowly, "'we never remembered to tell them that John Massey has left his place. I don't think anyone but ourselves knows that he went away immediately. 
they will be thinking that he is still there watching the dike, and tonight, listen how loud the river sounds. Suppose we go down and look, said Polly. It will not take us long, and the road runs close to the bank. He turned the car accordingly, and they sped down the steep road, the sky growing brighter above them, and the darkness fading as the moon came out. When they reached the last incline, the whole of the valley lands, spread below them, were so flooded with light that the broad picture looked like an etching. White fields, black trees with blacker splashes of shade, sharp-cut, pointed shadows of houses and farm buildings, the silver expanse of the river, and the straight white ribbon of the road. It was all very still and peaceful, with scarcely a light in any house, and no single moving figure upon the highway. Medford Valley, worn out with its day of merrymaking, was wrapped in heavy sleep. Very strangely, the sight of this unsuspecting, slumbering community seemed to fill them all with sudden misgiving. "'I hope there's nothing wrong,' muttered Oliver, swinging the car into its highest speed as they dashed down the road. John Massey's house lay still and dark in the moonlight, its windows staring with the blank eyes that an uninhabited dwelling always shows the moment home life has gone out of it. They stopped the car near his gate and climbed out, all three of them, to walk at the foot of the high grass-covered bank and search for signs of danger. It looked firm and solid enough, with its thick green sod, its fringe of willows along the top, but with the whispering haste of the river sounding plainly against its outer wall. Standing on tiptoe, they could catch sight of the swift sliding water, risen so high that it touched the very top of the bank. The roar of the swollen current could be heard all across the valley, but it was not so ominous somehow as the smaller voices of the ripples sucking and gurgling so close to their ears. They walked along, three ghostly figures in the moonlight, until Janet, who happened to be ahead, stopped suddenly. "'I hear something strange. I don't understand what it is,' she said. Oliver stepped forward, bending his head to listen. Yes, he could hear it too. The sound was a soft hissing, as though a tiny snake might be hidden in the grass at their feet. But there was no grass thick enough for such shelter, only a few sparse stalks rising in a drift of sand at the foot of the dike. The noise was made by the moving of the sand particles as they stirred and seethed with drops of water bubbling between them like the trickle of a spring. As they watched, the round wet space widened. It had been as big as a cup. Now it was like a dinner plate. It's a leak in the bank. Oliver regarded it intently, thinking it quite too small to be dangerous. I ought to be able to put my thumb in it, he added cheerfully, but either there is something wrong with that Dutch story, or there is something wrong with this hole. It isn't a joke, said Polly quickly. They always begin that way. It—oh, run, run! For the boiling circle of sand had changed suddenly to a spout of muddy water that shot upward, spreading into a wide brown pool that came washing over the grass to hide the spot where they had stood a moment before. From the higher ground of the road they watched it follow them, rising, pausing a little, then rising again. 
back up the car or you will have to drive through the water directed polly henry brooks is the nearest house where we can find help if that leak is to be blocked the men will have to be quick they were in the car oliver had backed it round almost within its own length and they were flying up the road before polly had finished speaking once years ago this long stretch of dyke caved in and the whole current of the river came roaring down through the bottomlands but there were no houses here then they came to a crossroad turned into it and stopped short before a gate oliver did not take time to open it but tumbled over the top raced across the grass and thundered at the door of a dark silent house oh why did country people sleep so soundly he knocked and knocked again and after what seemed an interminable time saw a light above and heard a window open what do you want the farmer's big voice sounded none too pleased but it changed quickly when oliver told his news a break in the dyke where on anthony crawford's land is it well that's just where it would be we don't any of us around here have much friendship for crawford of course if the leak is very bad it will threaten us all i'll spread the alarm while you go to get mr payton they were away up the road again but fast as they flew the news seemed to travel faster the rural telephone and the comfortable country habit of listening in on every message can spread tidings broadcast at a moment's notice the largest farm at the foot of the valley had a great bell swung above its central barn a bell whose excited voice could carry but one of two messages flood or fire before they were halfway up the hill its wild clanging was calling all across the valley up cousin jasper's avenue they came with a rush flung themselves out of the car and ran to the house the two men were still bending over the papers cousin jasper with his thin intent face listening tom brydon talking steadily his eyes alight with that cheerful eager kindliness that had so drawn oliver to him from the first moment they both turned in astonishment as the three came bursting in a break in the dyke at john massey's place and where was john massey cousin tom questioned sharply gone if we had known that he had left neither jasper nor i would have been sitting here so quietly all evening with the river in flood and you have given the alarm that is good there was a bustle of hasty preparations but they were still standing in the hall when there came the sound of flying wheels on the drive and the uneven hoofbeats of an uncertain old horse urged to utmost speed it's anthony crawford said oliver suddenly the man came in, the outcast cousin who had turned his hand against them all. His face was white, his grey eyes were burning with excitement, his voice was harsh and choked when he tried to speak. The dyke! I see you know already. I went down over the hill to look and saw the moonlight on that pool of water. It was at John Massey's place. I came to get help. Cousin Tom alone answered. Why was John Massey gone? he said. Oliver stepped forward to Tom Brydon's side and looked curiously at the man who had been their enemy. He could see his hands shake as they crushed his battered old hat between them. We had quarreled, Anthony Crawford explained, 
his voice suddenly gone little and husky. I turned him away three days ago, and— and we had some words so that he wouldn't even stay overnight after that. He watched the dike, and now the water is coming in. One more question, Cousin Tom asked. Why did you come to us? he inquired steadily. It would have been quicker to go down through the fields to the farms in the valley, to call out Henry Brook and send him with men and shovels and sandbags to stop the flood. To get here is a mile by the road, and there was no time to lose. He pressed his question mercilessly. Why did you come to us? Anthony Crawford moistened his dry lips, but he did not speak. There was a pause, though all of them knew that every second the waters of Medford River were sweeping higher and higher. It was finally Tom Bryden who answered his own question. You were afraid to go elsewhere. It was your doing this flood. You took the land, you neglected the dikes, you sent John Massey away who would have watched against such a disaster as this. You were afraid to face those men below and tell them what you had done. The other nodded. I haven't a friend in Medford Valley to help me, except you. Yes, I was afraid to face them. The break is in just the place where it may flood the whole bottom land. I thought they wouldn't move to help me until it was too late. And on my life, Tom Bryden, if we can stop the flood, I do not care what becomes of me. It was quite true, as they could all see, that the man's desperate terror was not all for himself, that the situation was far too bad for that. He was picturing how the whole torrent of Medford River might soon be sweeping across those fields of ripening grain, those comfortable barns with their cows and sheep and horses, those pleasant white farmhouses where a hundred people lay asleep. He was seeing how, little by little, he had built up the wrong that was to be his ruin. He had driven away his friends, he had seized the land, he had turned off its guardian, and now in a wild whirlwind the results of his misdoing were upon him. He did not look at Tom Bryden's set face, but at Jasper Payton, the one he had wronged most. "'A man can't live without friends,' he said. "'Will you stand by me, Jasper? Not for what I deserve, but for what I need?' "'Yes,' answered Jasper Payton. He smiled suddenly, with all the old tense misery quite gone from his face. "'We're going to stand by you, Anthony, all of us.' We are with you still. End of chapter 11